We turn together to Matthew chapter 2, continuing with the history of the visit of the wise men. We will read the first 12 verses, and verses 3 through 8 will be our text. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Here we end our reading of the scriptures. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Scriptures have allowed us to watch as something very surprising took place. Not long after the birth of Jesus in lowly Bethlehem, unnoticed or disregarded by most, wise men, magi from the east, came in search of the promised king of the Jews. They knew that this promised king had been born because they had seen his star while they were in the east. And they came to worship him because of who he is. The promised seed of the woman. The promised Christ. The Messiah. God's anointed king. The savior. Sent and come to save his people from their sins. And so those magi had arrived in Jerusalem, the city of the great king, expecting to find David's city in celebration, but they found rather a city dark and indifferent. They asked around, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And how disheartened they must have been to find so many people not knowing, not caring, unable to answer their question. And yet... They persevered by the work of the Spirit. They persevered and pressed on 
Even as Jerusalem ignored the fulfillment of the promise at her very doorstep, these wise men would not rest until they saw him and bent their knees before him. But there was another who was taking notice of everything that was going on. Very keen notice. The one who for centuries, millennia, had opposed the coming of this king, the child king now in Bethlehem. And that is, of course, the devil, the serpent himself, who was watching and who was working and who was yet deploying all of the craftiness and devices at his disposal to thwart This child king who had been recently born. And we see that now in our text. As the devil employs one of his many agents. But one in a powerful position. To begin opposing. Christ the king. The arrival of the wise men from the east. And especially their strange questions. While few took notice. One man especially did take notice, and that was King Herod. It did not take long for word to reach Herod about this newborn king of the Jews. And this troubled Herod. And behind Herod, the devil is working. And Herod will emerge now as the great enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the early days of his life. And as the great contrast, the wise men. From the east who came seeking to worship the Christ. While Herod will seek to destroy the Christ. And that's the history that we consider tonight. Herod's reaction to the news. of The birth. The king of the Jews. Let's consider this next portion of Matthew 2. Under the theme searching for the child king. That's what Matthew 2 verses 3 through 8 describes. The search For the child king. We'll look first at a troubled king and city. Secondly, that king's inquiring of the scriptures. And finally, the wise men sent to Bethlehem. Matthew 2 begins by telling us that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. And now Herod the king comes to the foreground in the beginning of our text. Who was this Herod? There were several Herods in the Bible, all of whom are more or less, or in one way or another, related to this Herod described in our text. The Herod in our text was the first of the several Herods in the Bible, and he is commonly called Herod the Great. Great not on account of his virtue or on account of his good rule, for he was neither. But great on account of his long rule. He ruled over Judea for nearly 37 years. And he accomplished many things by earthly standards during his rule. One of his greatest building projects, and there were many that he sponsored, was a complete renovation of the temple in Jerusalem. King Herod the Great. He's called a king in the text, and that's undoubtedly how Herod saw himself, but really he was a puppet ruler. He owed his position to the Roman Caesar with whom he had won favor. Herod is known to history, and history fits entirely with the Bible's portrayal of him, 
Herod the Great was a cunning, suspicious, and a ruthless man, especially later in his reign, and the events of our text take place in the last years of Herod's reign. He was a man plagued by paranoia who saw threats against his position and power everywhere, and he would quickly strike out ruthlessly against any who he perceived as a threat. In fact, history tells us that Herod even had some of his own sons executed because he suspected them of intrigue. He had no qualms with killing people who he had the least suspicion were working against him. That's the kind of man that he was. And you can imagine how the people of Judah groaned under the rule of this tyrant. One more detail that is important about Herod the Great is that he was not a Jew, but an Idumean. That is, a man of Edomite descent. Idumea was a little region just west of the Dead Sea, but south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. He was a descendant of Esau. And though Herod outwardly practiced certain elements of the Jewish religion, he was not a believer. And even though he engaged in that great renovation of the temple in Jerusalem, it was a political move in order to curry the favor of the Jews. He was a shrewd politician and ruler who presented himself as the patron of religion, though he cared nothing for it himself. This further emphasizes the spiritual darkness of the people of Israel in the land of Judah at the time of our Lord's birth. A descendant of Esau sits upon the throne of David. Indeed, by all appearances, it seemed as though the scepter had indeed departed from Judah. But now, at last, Shiloh comes. And that prophecy will be fulfilled. That's Herod. Now, the text goes on to tell us that when Herod heard about the wise men and their search for the newborn king, the child king, he was troubled. Troubled particularly at what he heard about what these wise men were asking. Certainly, Herod, proud man that he was, was irked by the fact that foreign dignitaries Wise men from the east had come to Jerusalem, come to his domain, and yet they had come not to visit him, but searching for another that would have bothered proud Herod. But what unsettled him, what troubled him, and the word troubled in the text refers to great anxiety, an inner lack of peace because of fear, anxiety. Herod was upset. What troubled him so much was what was said. By these magi. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? In Herod's mind there is no king of the Jews. And there should be no king of the Jews. Except me, Herod. And Herod is troubled. Because he understood. The thrust of the wise men's question. He understood that this child king that they sought was more than just an ordinary king. He heard about what drew the wise men from the east, how they had seen his star while they were in the east, and that star was a sign of the Messiah king's birth. Herod understood that fact. 
And that Herod understood it is clear from what we read later in our text, where Herod takes action and he summons the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, to inquire where this king would be born. Why does Herod do that? Because he understands the king that the wise men are seeking is no ordinary king, but the promised Messiah king. Herod was undoubtedly acquainted with those promises of the Old Testament scriptures. He made it his business to know what his subjects believed in order better to manipulate them. And so this unbeliever, this tyrant, had an acquaintance with the Old Testament scriptures. And what Herod feared above all was that this Messiah King, the true heir of the throne of David, would come. And the people would rally around him and rise up against him on a grand scale. And that had to be stopped at all costs, Herod thought. We see that Herod does not perceive what Pontius Pilate would later recognize. That the Messiah king did not come to be an earthly king to take up the sword and to make himself the new Caesar ruling over the known world. But the Messiah came to be a spiritual king to fight a spiritual battle, to liberate his people from sin and death, and to establish a spiritual kingdom. Indeed, we see that the mistaken notion of who the Messiah would be, and the mistaken notion of the nature of his kingdom, which prevailed among the Jews of that time, only added fuel to the fire of King Herod's fear. This notion of a coming Messiah... The notion that he had in his mind was of a great earthly king like David who would establish a new earthly kingdom. That is what he feared above all. Herod didn't want the Romans kicked out of Judea like the rest of his subjects did because Herod owed his position of power to Caesar. And so Herod saw the prophecy of the Messiah, the son of David, as a direct threat to his reign. But it goes deeper than that. Herod, the Idumean, the descendant of reprobate Esau, the ungodly, unbelieving king, tyrannically ruling over Israel in these dark days, has spiritual enmity towards this coming king. There is the hatred of the serpent for the seed of the woman expressed in Herod's trouble, his concern, his fear, his anger at what he hears. About the child king who has been born. Herod is troubled. But now an interesting detail the text also tells us is that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And we might ask, why would Jerusalem, the city of the great king, be troubled by these tidings that the promised king has been born? Certainly not due to their loyalty to Herod. This ruthless tyrant was despised by the Jews nearly universally. The only Jews that liked Herod was that sect called the Herodians who supported him and benefited handsomely for their support of him. We can understand on a human level why Jerusalem would be troubled because Herod was troubled. Jerusalem and the people knew the nature of Herod and when Herod got suspicious and when Herod got worried, People often suffered and died for it. Trouble for Herod meant trouble for everyone. And yet there's more to it than that concern on a mere human level. All Jerusalem with 
him. And that indicates there was some shared feeling of anxiety, concern, and unhappiness with the news that these wise men brought. The questions these wise men were asking. That Jerusalem was so troubled is indeed troubling. For what were the wise men talking about except the possibility that the promise, the promise, had been fulfilled? That Israel's hope throughout the ages has perhaps been fulfilled. It might at last be realized. The promise the fathers yearned for might perhaps be fulfilled. That is news. Not to trouble and grip the heart with anxiety, but to lift the soul with excitement, with anticipation, with yearning to know more and to discover the facts of the matter Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star. Could it be that the star promised long ago, the star out of Jacob, the scepter, that Shiloh has at last come? But the first thoughts of so many in Jerusalem were not that, that perhaps the Savior has come, the Savior we need. Instead, they were, oh no! What disruption is this going to bring to our lives? Christ's advent has interrupted the spiritual sleepiness of the people, and that is unwelcome. That is unwelcome. That's troubling. Spiritual state of Israel is very bleak. We see who sits on the throne, but the spiritual state is very bleak on the ground level among the people of Jerusalem too. Very few are looking for the Christ anymore. There were a few. Simeon and Anna, not long ago, who had seen the Christ when Joseph and Mary had brought him as a little baby to the temple and presented him there. There were those in Jerusalem that undoubtedly rejoiced at these wise men and their coming because they knew, they already knew. Most of the city was troubled. A couple things to see here that are significant then. First, with regard to Herod, Herod being troubled. To get at the heart of it, we must see that Herod, deep down, knew that he was a usurper on David's throne. But he would not acknowledge it, and he would fiercely fight against the rightful king of the Jews. And that's precisely the mode of operation that Herod's master has. The devil. The devil knows that he is a usurper. The devil knows that he has set himself against the most high God. A battle he cannot win and yet he rages yet and he throws himself in all of his fury against God and his purposes and his church. That's going to be Jesus' ministry. His whole life in ministry will be marked by this kind of opposition. By kings, by rulers, by religious authorities, by the people. From Jesus' earliest days, Psalm 2. That prophecy about Christ the King. From his earliest days, that psalm is being fulfilled. 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Yes, we will see that at the end of Jesus' life when the Sanhedrin, the religious authority and the Roman authority, Pontius Pilate, unite together to crucify the Christ. But we see that already right after Jesus' birth in the opposition of Herod, the king of Judea. His opposition to the Christ. Herod perceived Christ to be a threat, and rightly so. No greater threat to the powers of darkness has ever entered the world. No greater threat to the powers of darkness than this child in little Bethlehem. He's come to storm Satan's stronghold, to deliver his people sitting in darkness, to lead captivity captive. Herod trembles before him in fear and in rage. And in Herod's trembling, we see Satan's trembling. What a beautiful and what a comforting thought that is. Satan himself trembled before this child king. That's how great our Savior is. Satan trembles. Herod trembles. We rejoice. Our God has set his holy king on Zion's hill. And God has given him the heathen for his inheritance and the possession of the furthest reaches of the earth. And he shall break his enemies with the rod of iron. Even as the devil trembles before the child king. We see the power and the might of our savior king. And we rest in him. Just as Psalm 2 says at its end, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. But now, secondly, looking back at the people of Jerusalem, their troubled reaction to the news of Christ's birth is troubling. And yet this too had to happen because it was part of our Savior's substitutionary sufferings, which begin at his lowly birth laid in the manger in Bethlehem, rejected. There's no room for him in the inn. And from there, his sufferings increase. We see that here. There was no room for Jesus in Bethlehem. No room for him in the inn. And there's no room for him in Jerusalem either. And his ministry will show there's no room for him in Galilee. And there's no room for him in Israel. And there's no room for him among the powerful religious elite of the day. There's no room for him among most of the people of the land. He is rejected and scorned of men. Though he comes to visit, he comes to visit his people with salvation. No one visits him. Except these Gentile wise men and a few lowly shepherds. It's part of his suffering. But now the trouble of the people of Jerusalem also points out this truth to us. That Christ's advent, his coming, brings peace. The coming of true peace must trouble sinners who are secure in their sins. And that's good. If we're secure in our sins, think we're doing all right, and there's no need to turn, no need to repent, no need to live a new life, no need to trust in the Savior God provides, then we are in big trouble. 
And it's merciful when God troubles us on account of our sin. In order to turn us. The light of Christ exposes our sins and calls us to repentance and faith. Christ's coming is disruptive to the comfortable lives of the earthly minded and the spiritually sleepy. And we see that in Jerusalem. They didn't want to be bothered with this possibility of a Messiah King being born and the potential upheaval that will cause in their comfortable lives. They wanted to keep going, business as usual, things are okay, let's not stir the pot or rock the boat. But the advent of Christ reveals the vanity and the folly of such a life, of earthly mindedness. Christ's coming ought to trouble those who are comfortable and secure in earthly mindedness or sin. And Christ's coming ought to comfort the troubled. Those whose hearts are weighed down by sin. Those whose hearts are weighed down by troubles. But who turn to him in faith. Christ comes to trouble the comfortable. But to comfort the troubled. And so to apply it to us personally. Not just in this Christmas season, but in all of our walk of life. Are we too comfortable in this world? We need to take stock of ourselves. Are we too much at home here? Are we too prosperous to really, really yearn for the coming of the kingdom? Are we so comfortable that the signs of Christ's second advent maybe go unnoticed, or if they are noticed, they only trouble us. Now admittedly, great trouble must come. We know that from the scriptures. And because we are weak fleshly creatures, we fear that. And that's not to be minimized. But the thought of the day, last days and the coming of Christ should not only trouble us, but should lift our hearts. Our Lord draws nigh. Jesus gave these words to his church shortly before he left this world in his upper room discourse. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth. Give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Let our meditations on the nativity of Christ, our King, bear this fruit in us. That unlike Jerusalem... We have a restlessness and a dissatisfaction with this world and this present age and the way things are. And instead we seek with a fervency, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Well now to move on in the history. Herod, troubled, acts quickly. Very much in character with this cunning tyrant. He acts quickly to shore up a potential breach in his authority and power. And in his mind, hopefully, to get rid of the king of the Jews. Herod's first move was to make an inquiry about the birthplace of the promised Messiah king. And to make such an inquiry, he must inquire of the scriptures. And to have the scriptures explained to him with certainty, so that there may be no mistake, he calls those who in the day were the experts 
in the scriptures. And so in verse 4 we read that Herod summons the chief priests and the scribes, that is the top religious officials in Jerusalem. The chief priests were the, they were the ones who carried most of the power and the influence. And the scribes, they were of course the experts in the Old Testament law, in the scriptures and the prophets. He calls them all, the text says. He didn't want any mistake to be made. He wanted to get the facts straight. Interesting, isn't it? Herod is the one person the text records who actually takes up the Magi's question. Who wants to get at the answer of where will the Christ be born? And so he calls them, and that's the question he puts to them. He probably asked them several questions, but that's the main question, the answer of which he was after. Where do your scriptures say the promised Messiah shall be born? Another striking detail. Herod took the scriptures seriously. Not because he had reverence for God or his word or any true faith. Of course he didn't. He took scripture seriously the same way the devil takes the scripture seriously. This is God's word. Not a thing to be trifled with. Shows the folly then of men who dismiss the scriptures, who scorn the scriptures, who don't take the scriptures seriously at all. Such as the spirit of our age. That's folly. Utter folly that extends even, you might say, beyond the folly of the devil himself who knows enough to take the word of God seriously. There's a caution to all of us because our sinful flesh wants to not take the word of God as seriously as we should. Scriptures are the words of God himself The very breath of him who is truth. Scriptures ought always to demand our full attention, our complete obedience. Well, Herod takes them seriously. As Belgic Confession Article 5 says, the very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are fulfilling. Herod, though spiritually blind, was able to perceive that. But just like Satan, his master, in reckless rage and folly, he is determined to try to thwart the scriptures that he sees fulfilling. So he asks the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, where will Messiah be born? And the chief priests and the scribes easily reply reply back. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards. And so in verses 5 and 6, they give their answer. Verses 5 and 6. Then they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea. They state outright where the Messiah would be born. For thus it is written by the prophet. And now in verse 6 they proceed to refer to an Old Testament prophecy. Micah 5 verse 2. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now if you compare that with the actual text of Micah 2, you'll notice there are some differences. The reason for those differences is not because Matthew 
didn't know Micah 5 and made a mistake. The likeliest explanation is that the scribes and the chief priests simply quoted the text, paraphrasing it, much the same way as we do in our day-to-day conversation. When we refer to a Bible text or apply it to a certain situation, we quote the pertinent part, or we paraphrase it, we express the main idea and apply it to a situation, even if we don't quote it exactly, all of the grammar, the way it is written in the text. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees do here. They quote the most relevant portion and apply it to the current situation. The answer to Herod's question. He wanted to know, where is the Messiah going to be born? And Micah 5 verse 2 tells us, in Bethlehem. Why? Because Bethlehem was the the city of David. The place where David spent his childhood. And as other prophecies in the scripture make clear, the Messiah would be a king born from David's royal line. Herod now has what he wanted. The exact birthplace of the promised king. Pleased he surely was with that. Bethlehem. Just a few miles south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, which belongs to the land of Judah, which is under Herod's jurisdiction. This will make it far easier, he thinks, to take action against his foe. And Bethlehem is just a small village, a small population. The task of finding and identifying this child will be that much easier. But surely... Surely the words of the scriptures referred to by the scribes and the Pharisees must have shaken him more. and Caused that storm of fear within him to rage the more. Out of thee, Bethlehem, shall come a governor that shall rule my people, Israel. A few significant things to notice now and apply to ourselves. First, Micah's prophecy, Micah 5 verse 2 here, is a powerful proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King. And that's one of the Gospel of Matthew's chief objectives, one of its main goals. Matthew wrote his Gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Particularly to Jews. And one of his main purposes was to set forth Christ as the king of the Jews. The promised, long-awaited Messiah. And that's why the Gospel of Matthew, of all four of the Gospels, it's Matthew that contains vastly the most Old Testament references. Matthew's design is to prove from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. And he shows that by appealing to prophecy after prophecy, promise after promise, that is fulfilled in this Jesus born in Bethlehem. Already in the first couple chapters of Matthew, we've seen that. Matthew 1 gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or one of the genealogies, and points out how Jesus comes from the line of David, just as the Old Testament prophesied. Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, though briefer than Luke 2, given from Joseph's perspective, 
cites Isaiah 7 verse 14, that well-known prophecy of the virgin birth, and shows Jesus is the fulfillment of those ancient words of Isaiah the prophet. And now too, Micah 5 verse 2, Micah was a prophet who labored in the same time frame, at the same time as Isaiah, centuries before the birth of Jesus, and yet he prophesied that the the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And now Matthew shows how those ancient words fit just right, apply to this Jesus. And to confirm it all the more, the very leaders of the Jews, the scribes and the chief priests, interpret this passage as applying to the Messiah. Unbeknownst to them, they lend credence to the fact that Jesus is that Messiah, though they do not acknowledge him. So Matthew wrote to the Jews to show them Christ is the fulfillment of Scripture. And that purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is important for us too. It strengthens and builds our faith, doesn't it? When we read through the Old Testament and we encounter all of these ancient words, all of these promises, all of these prophecies written and spoken and preached Hundreds, even thousands of years ago. And then we read about the life of Christ and it fits perfectly. The very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in the scriptures are fulfilling. When we search the scripture, we see Christ on every page. And that only confirms our faith the more. that The babe born in Bethlehem, whose birth we now celebrate, is God in the flesh, our Savior, who has saved us from our sins. Our hope is not in vain. Our faith is not vain. Our celebration of the birth of this child is not a vain, sentimental festivity like the world makes it out to be. But it is a celebration of salvation accomplished. The scriptures show us that. The second place. As we read Micah's prophecy. Quoted here in Matthew 2. We see two kings compared. Herod the king. And Christ the king. And what different kings they are. What a contrast. Herod, the king of overbearing pride. Jesus, the son of God, who actually does deserve all glory and honor. And yet he is the king who humbles himself and is born in Bethlehem, gentle and lowly. Here is Herod, doing all that he can to prop himself up in his position, in his power, who will use his power to oppress and to manipulate those under him. And here's Christ. The very opposite. Christ the king who becomes a lowly babe, a little child for us. Who lays aside his glory. And not only that, but who comes to suffer. And to redeem his subjects from the tyranny of the tyrant, the devil. That's Christ. 
Christ the King who comes to employ his almighty royal power, not to oppress but to bring good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to them that are bound, to appoint unto those that mourn beauty for their ashes, the oil of joy for their mourning, the garment of praise for their heaviness. That's our King. Herod the King. Mighty Herod the Great built his kingdom on ruthless bloodshed. Christ the King establishes and builds his kingdom through the shedding of his own blood for his people, for his sheep. To spare them from the holy and the just wrath of Almighty God. Christ the King is the shepherd king who gives his life for the sheep. What a contrast to every corrupt earthly power that would prop itself up by feeding on the sheep. Christ gives his life for his sheep. Let that be an encouragement and a comfort to us all. Christ, your king beloved, gave his life for you to take away your sins. Hurting, suffering saint, Perhaps you've been wounded very deeply by people, even people in power. Christ is so very different. He gave himself to save you, to bind up your wounds, to make you his forever. Trust in him, even when everything else fails you. Struggling sinner, trust in him. He gave his life to wash away your sins. Go to your shepherd every day. Rest in him. But now lastly, what about the chief priests and the scribes who fittingly quoted Micah 5.2, giving Herod the answer that he wanted? Something to see about them. They gave a good answer to the question. There's something very wrong here, isn't there? Where will Christ be born? Bethlehem. God said so. Through the prophet. They knew the answer. They gave the right answer. But what's so wrong is that the answer that they gave didn't have any effect on their lives. What do the chief priests and what do the scribes do after this conference with King Herod? They go back home. They go back to their normal lives as if nothing had happened. They give the answer, yes, the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. They also have heard the reports of the wise men, the wise men's inquiry about the one who has been born king of the Jews because they've seen his star. And yet, the very rulers of Israel take no interest. They don't even investigate whether the wise men's claims were true. They leave Herod's palace Indifferent. Even though they knew the Bible so well. Their knowledge didn't sink into their hearts. The Bible they knew so well. Didn't get from their heads. Down to their feet. To make them go to Bethlehem. And see for themselves. 
It didn't affect their lives. And that brings out an important truth. The only way for the Bible to get from our heads to our feet, to our hands, and to our eyes, the only way for the Bible to control the way we live is if it gets from our heads to our hearts. And that's another struggle of the Christian life, isn't it? It's so easy to be like the chief priests, like the scribes. It's a spiritual battle not to follow in their footsteps. Do we know the Bible well? That's good if we do. And we should all strive to know the Bible well. We should all strive to be able to give educated answers to questions about the Bible. We should know our Reformed theology well. We should know the doctrines of grace which are at the heart of the gospel. Let that knowledge never cease to be found in our midst. But does that knowledge lead us to do things? And by things, I mean to live a new life, to seek after Christ, to walk in His footsteps, to serve Him, to love Him, to be fruitful servants in His vineyard. That's what that knowledge should lead to. Let it guide your feet and your hands and your eyes and your tongue. The gospel must enter our minds, sink into our hearts, from our hearts be pumped to every part of our bodies so that we live that gospel. There's a fascinating passage in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, where The Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthians. Ye are our epistle. Ye are our epistle. Written in our hearts. Known and read of all men. Forasmuch as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. There's a lot there. But one of the ideas is this. God's people ought to be living epistles. The knowledge of the scripture should become visible in our lives. Our lives should be open Bibles in which other people can read the truths of the gospel. As we meditate on the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the wonder of his salvation for us. Let the pages of the Bible be opened and left open. And may we, the workplace, home, everywhere we go, be that open Bible so that others see something, the glory of this Christ. Having gotten the information he wanted, the scheming king now begins to put in motion his wicked plot against the Christ of God. Herod will call the wise men and then send them to Bethlehem. That's what the last couple verses of our text 
explains to us, Herod called the wise men to his palace and put on the mask of shared interest in the child king. And the text tells us that he called the wise men privily. And the word privily simply means secretly. He didn't want word getting out that he was interested in all the talk that was going on on account of the wise men. Because he had a plan. and He wanted to be covert about his plan. And so he calls the wise men secretly. Likely he had a private audience with the wise men in his palace. Undoubtedly he received them warmly and did his best at self-serving hospitality. This ruthless king could be winsome when it served his purposes. Perhaps he even hosted the wise men for a private banquet. Whatever the case may be, Herod was after information. He inquires of them diligently, the text says, what time the star appeared. Herod asks, when did that star, that star that you saw while you were in the east, when did it appear? That shows us that the star had by this time disappeared. The wise men couldn't take Herod out onto the palace roof and point at the star and say, there it is. It had disappeared. Herod is wondering, when did it first appear? In his mind, it seems that if he learned when the star first appeared, he would get a rough idea of when this child king had been born, and that would be useful information that he could employ in his wicked plot that he was devising. Well, the wise men, we can imagine, were all too happy to tell Herod everything they knew. They didn't know Herod. They didn't know his character. And they were happy, finally, to have someone who showed what appeared to be genuine interest in the question they were asking. Finally, someone who also had interest in this promised king. And so they told him. The Bible doesn't tell us when they first saw the star, but evidently the wise men told Herod all that they knew. Then Herod, having gotten the facts on the star, verse 8 tells us, he then sends the Magi to Bethlehem with special instructions. He answers their question. He had gotten the answer from the chief priests and the scribes. Bethlehem is where the promised king will be born. And having gotten the information on the star, Herod tells the wise men the answer to the question they so desperately wanted answered. Bethlehem, just a few miles south, go there, look for him, look for this king. Don't stop looking until you've found him. And when you have, be sure to come back and tell me, because I desire to go and to worship him as well. The wise men believed Herod. Why wouldn't they? They must have rejoiced. To hear this and carry out the instructions they were given, not knowing it was a devilish lie, not knowing that Herod, with great cunning, was actually enlisting them in his service to be his spies. There's no better spy to have in your employ than one who doesn't even know he's your spy. See Herod's cunning here in using the wise men to scout out Bethlehem and find the Christ child. And so the wise men go to Bethlehem. And the serpent readies itself to pounce. But this child is the ruler come forth from Bethlehem whose goings forth 
have been of old from everlasting. The serpent's plot will not succeed. Its defeat was foretold just as Messiah's birth was foretold. Prophesied in the same mother promise. The mother promise of the coming Christ. And the mother promise of the crushing of the serpent's head. The wise men go to find this king. Whom Herod plots to kill. And indeed this king came to die. And die he would, but not now, not yet. His time has not yet come. He would not die under the sword of King Herod or his men. But on Calvary's cross, that's why he came. That's why he was put in the manger. That's why he took on flesh. To go to that cross. There... To perform the most marvelous kingly act of conquest ever wrought. Salvation of sinners. The destruction of the power of the devil and of death. Through the giving of his own life. A mighty kingly work. So unlike. So far and above. Every earthly king and power. We'll look forward to going to Bethlehem next Sunday. We look at the next portion of the text and the wise men worshiping this child king. Let us see, let us see the victory that we have in him. Who he is, what he has done. We also may bow in worship and enjoy before our king. Amen. Our faithful God and our heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this gospel history and the instruction that it gives us. We thank Thee for the knowledge of Thy Word and the knowledge of the Scriptures. Help us to be fruitful in that knowledge. Grant that by Thy grace we too may be living epistles whose lives are like open Bibles in which others may read of the wonders that Thou hast done and catch a glimpse of the glory of of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Bless us now in the week that is before us. Keep us in thy fatherly care. For Jesus' sake we ask this all. Amen.